TechShift is supported by North Park University, offering more than 40 undergraduate programs within an intercultural Christian setting on the north side of Chicago. More at northpark.edu. North Park University, lives of significance and service. The FCC proposes subsidizing broadband access for the poor. Google introduces some pretty fantastic technology, even for Google, and the latest supercomputing news. Why supercomputing? Well, today for our TechShift Week in Review, we're joined by Argonne's Deputy Director for its Leadership Computing Facility, Susan Coughlin, as well as our WBEZ Super Digital Guy, Tim Akamoff. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank you. Let's start with uh, the news that we saw from the FCC this week, a proposal by F- uh, the FCC chairman to subsidize broadband access. We talked about this on, on the show earlier in the week, and what stood out to me and why I thought we should talk about it on TechShift Week in Review was a statistic that 30% of Chicagoans don't have access to the Internet, mostly, of course, because they can't afford it, which begs the question, how limited are your opportunities if you don't have access to broadband technology? Susan? Right. So um, access to the Internet is really like a free pass to the Library of Congress, if you think about it. I mean, it enables people to have access to free training. There's tons of educational programs out there. There's even safety videos, books, foreign language courses, and so much more that you can get from that, which all of that opens up opportunities. And in particular, for the people looking at being subsidized by this, one of the most critical things is, is how do you get a better paying job? Um, And it opens opportunities in education so that if you have a computer or you have a tablet and a reasonable performance network to run those streaming videos, et cetera, and courses over, you can really get some great skills that can then be used to turn into a job. And and in large cases, a, a, a remote job, which would allow you to avoid costs such as your own car and work clothes and child care, et cetera. Tim, do you think this is the point where the federal government now has recognized that access to broadband is just as important as electricity or heat or other things that the federal government subsidizes for low-income residents? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, over the last year, we've seen battle over battle, you know, after battle uh, to to try and, um, you know, standardize this in some way. And so I think the government has got that information. Uh, But the other thing I think, too, is, you know, recently it came out that transportation is this kind of key indicator of poverty or, or at least a reason why a lot of people are or stuck in, in poverty. poverty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, the thing about this is that I, I don't know that the government has made this conclusion or not. I don't even know if it's a conclusion, but I think uh, what Susan's saying is, is very true. This allows access to things that you wouldn't normally have access to, and you can do it without actually needing to further develop transportation, although we want that. Um, people will have access to all kinds of things that they, they would normally have to go somewhere in a car, and I think that will change things. I think that will make a big deal. Speaking of access and of changing things, technology changing things, Google has introduced some pretty cool technology. Tim, you want to tell us about it? Yeah, so Google, um, you know, they've been the god of search for so long now, but, you know, behavior has really switched to smartphones and, you know, apps are increasingly uh, growing in terms of, of usage. And, you know, Google was starting to fall behind because there's really not a great way to search for things within a phone. Um, and so what they're doing is they're building a layer on top of their Android platform that will basically allow them to monitor how you use the apps. And in that, um, it will become more contextual, meaning that it, 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 it 
kind of looks at your life and how you do things. If you select a certain app and play a certain artist and then you want to know who that artist is, you go to Google and boom, that, that artist's name shows up in the search. Um, it, it's more contextualized information about your life. That doesn't really exist right now and it sort of gives Google a track back into the, oh, maybe the, the sort of leadership in the search realm. So, Susan, I mean, when you think about technology like this, how important do you think it is? In, and I think even in relation to things like, say, uh, technology that we didn't know that we needed that now we feel like we can't live without, right? Right. For example, Google Maps. I mean, how many of us go anywhere now without opening up a map app and letting it get us there? Um, but I, I, I would like us to say that while this is a step and it's an important step, I think the fact that it's a part of an app is just one little data point because just think about all the things a computer knows about you. It knows what tickets you're buying. It knows your calendar entries. It knows a lot. So there's some real privacy issues there. On the other hand, just think what it might be able to do if it was searching all that data and predicting what you might be going to do and saying, hey, I see you're heading out from work early on a Friday. Oh, I think you might be going to get a beer. Here's the map to your favorite watering hole. Oh, and hey, by the way, the half price off wings ends in 30 minutes, so you might want to hurry. So that kind of thing could be really amazing. It also might freak people out, right? I wish that existed right now. You and I have (laughs) talked about how we deliberately, like when we're searching for things to buy online, you taught me to go into private mode so we don't have those ads popping up for that one product for the next year when we're in Facebook. Part of that's because we don't, we're not comfortable with with contextualization yet um, because we are a private society. We value that and it's been difficult for us to adapt to that. However, you know, the more we adapt, the better the technology gets to sort of feed us the information we need. Um, we just haven't crossed that bridge yet. And I think it's interesting because Google Glass is largely seen as a failure. However, um, what, what what is coming out of it is that it, Google is still continuing to push that contextualized you know, surface. They're continuing to push it towards us more and more. Well, and when we think about data and privacy, one thing I just wanted to mention really quickly was the IRS data breach that we saw this week. Uh, Criminals using stolen data to gain access to past tax returns of more than 100,000 people through an app on the IRS website. Uh, Susan, how much does this concern you that now even apparently it's pretty easy, not maybe not easy, but it's certainly accessible to get into the IRS? Well, I guess I would say I'm, I'm actually not surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that everyone out there should assume that their data has been leaked in some way, shape, or form. Um, with the amount of integration of this online banking, credit cards, everything else in your lives, the best thing you can do is try and watch what's going on and track things, check your credit report, make sure your computer's up to date. All of those things will help you, but primarily you got to look and see what's happening on your credit cards, your bank accounts, et cetera, because it's highly likely somebody has your data. Susan, you uh, let's switch to supercomputing news. That's your life's work at Argonne National Labs. And I, when you brought to our attention um, in the supercomputing world, uh, Hewlett-Packard selling its majority stake uh, in China uh, to China's uh, Tsinghua University. Why did you want to talk about this story? Well, I wanted to talk about it because I think it says something about the HPC space and the importance uh, that it has today. Um, 10, 15 years ago, it was seen as sort of this esoteric niche market. But today, it's it's a huge economic benefit in all kinds of industries, in all kinds of science. Um, it's become really important. And China sees it as a 
huge competitive win if they can own the parts of it themselves. So if China can own it, they don't have to depend on the U.S. for their parts or for their components or for their systems, then that gives them a leg up. And is that, is it concerning a U.S. company basically selling part of itself to essentially the Chinese government? Um, it is in some ways. I think competi- competition is always good. But, of course, it is concerning for those of us who want to be able to purchase our supercomputing parts at a reasonable price in the future. And um, anybody having a monopoly on anything is always challenging. One other thing you wanted to talk about was gender diversity in the supercomputing space, uh, and in in particular highlighting your industry. I wonder, when you first started, uh, how many women were there in the supercomputing field? Not very many. Um, I remember my first tech conference I went to, I think it was back in 1988, um, I was one of about maybe five women uh, of a couple thousand men. And it was very disconcerting and very strange experience. And I wonder now how much you see that changing, how much you see an emphasis on, as you pointed out, you know, just the notion of people even thinking we're going to highlight women such as yourself who've been leaders in the supercomputing space. Um, I think it's changed some. I think uh, there's been a lot of work put in to getting women in the STEM fields, you know, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, which leads into the HPC space. I think there's been a lot of effort put into it, and I think they've had some success. And when we think about the HPC HPC space, Tim, I wonder where you see that kind of ranking in the whole tech world. Well, it's huge. I mean, you know, and I I think it's sort of the, I don't know, you know, we talk about Silicon Valley all the time, but the HPC spaces are was worldwide. And Susan and I were just talking before uh, this, uh, you know, about sort of what it, what it's like around the world. And other places like India, um, you know, tend to be integrating a little differently than the U.S. And so we're trying to change the culture, uh, kind of fiddling with the numbers, doing things with, uh, you know, tr- just trying to increase, you know, women in the STEM fields. Um, and I, I think that the HPC space around the world might be a place where we can actually go and look and see, uh, you know, Europe is, is going to be holding this conference. And I think that might be a place we could learn a little bit about how to do it better. We will have to see how that went. Uh, so we'll have to talk about that after it happens, right? So I want to thank uh, Susan Coughlin, who's the Deputy Director of um, Argonne's Leadership Computing Facility. Thanks also to WBEZ's Tim Akamoff, our digital editor. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Nyla. Thank you.